So God pilots the submarine right to where he needs to go. And the text says he vomited Jonah up onto dry land. It's a very picturesque expression in the Hebrew. I mean, gravy and all. He's thrown up. And he heads to Nineveh. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. The Lord disciplines those whom He loves. Just like He punished Jonah to draw him back to Himself, He'll punish His children that He might bring us to a place of repentance and obedience. We're in a study of the book of Jonah, and we see today that God's discipline can come in many different shapes and sizes. For Jonah, it was the great fish. Isaiah will say he was smitten of God and afflicted. He will write, the Lord was pleased to crush him. So who killed Jesus? God and man. And God used human agents to accomplish his work. So don't think that God is limited, that he needs to come down here with a physical paddle and take you to the woodshed to exercise his discipline. God has many creative ways in which to get our attention. Maybe you've learned this already in your Christian experience. I've seen pagan employers rebuke Christian employees because of either a dishonesty or more often than not, laziness or less than excellence in the work that they are doing. And one of the major principles that is found in this book that I want us to be sensitive to is the, the, the balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Let's read further into verse 3. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. The waves are all over Jonah and the current is moving him and God's breakers and billows, they're swallowing him up, verse four. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Now, why did he look again toward the holy temple? Because it was in the tabernacle, later the temple of God, where the Shekinah glory of God would come. And three times a day, you saw Daniel turning towards the temple. If you're in uh, some airport or maybe even at an, in an aircraft 30,000 feet above the earth, you will see Orthodox Jews, if it's part of that flight, it is, always is if you go from here to Israel, and they will turn to the temple and they will pray in that direction. That's what Jonah's doing. Now, was he literally, did he orient himself? I'm not so sure, but metaphorically, at least in his heart, he is doing what every righteous Jew would do. They would turn towards the temple of God and pray. Now remember, there was a time earlier when he had a way out. In Jonah 1 and verse 11, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? God was giving him a way out. He could have said, turn the ship around. Take me back to Joppa. Take me back there, I'm going to go to Nineveh, and the sea would have instantly have become calm. But that's not, of course, what he does. And so God says, you want to play hardball? Okay. Throw him overboard. And that's what God does. 
He is exercising divine discipline on his prophet. And sometimes God does that to his people today. We looked at it last time. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 11? For this reason, for what reason? Because some of the born-again Corinthian believers were living in sin. Open rebellion. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Hey, look, a whole lot of sickness comes just because we live in a fallen world. But some sickness, some weakness, some sleep, that is early death, comes from the disciplinary hand of God. And so he goes on to say, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Some people, I, I think, you know, I meet with them, I counsel them, I say, well, man, what's it gonna take? You know, I, I plead with you to get right. It's, it's not rocket science. The problem that's in your home today is just very simple. It's sin. The heart of the problem is always a problem of the heart, preachers will say. You just need to get right. What's it going to take? Does God have to drop your finances out? Is he going to let your children rebel because you're so far away from God and you're not bringing them up in the discipline and nurture of the Lord? Are you going to lose your job? Are you going to lose your house? I had to call a Marine. Just recently, I mean, he was here for a short time, was privileged to lead he and his wife to the Lord, baptize him here for one month. They go off to Virginia. She calls me heartbroken, another woman. I said, man, what's it going to take? You want to lose your wife? Who's willing to forgive you? You want to lose your kids? What's it going to take? Verse four, so I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. So Jonah is admitting his sin. He's turning back to the temple of God. That's a statement of recommitment that's found in the Old Testament. He is literally clinging to a promise that God had made earlier through a man by the name of King Solomon. Let me read it to you. It was on the day that Solomon dedicated the temple, 1 Kings 8. Solomon says, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction or the sin of his own heart and spreading his hands towards this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. That's precisely what Jonah's doing here in verse four. I've been expelled from your holy sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Circle that word again. It's a reminder that Jonah is still welcome back if he will cry out to the Lord. Verse five, water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds or seaweed were wrapped around my head. He can't free himself. He's in this watery grave. He's seemingly going to drown. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. In other words, he's sinking to the bottom of the sea into this watery grave. Don't think for a second he's thrown overboard and here comes Moby Dick and takes him in. No, God allows him to to suffer the consequences. He's sinking down. He is in a place where there's no help, there's no hope. 
God is giving him a sense of what the Ninevites feel. No help, no hope. And he wants him to see God's loving kindness just like he wants them to go and preach to the Ninevites of God's loving kindness. I don't miss the end of verse 6. But you have brought out my life from the pit, O Lord my God. That's God's grace. That's God's loving kindness so he can preach it to Nineveh. Jonah would not pray when the sailors asked him to pray. He would not get right when the lot identified him as the problem. But now he gets right, and he says, You have brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, and I love the New American Standard. It's still used to see that letter O. It's evocative. Most English translations have removed it. But when there's depth in the Hebrew text, they still use the evocative. Oh, Lord, you've brought me up from the pit. Now, someone might say, well, if God is omniscient and God is sovereign and going to do whatever he's going to do, then why pray? Because, again, there's this responsibility. There's this balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And so between Jonah 1.17 and 2.10, when he's swallowed and then vomited, you see a man in deep prayer. You see the balance between the two. Now, don't get lost in the emotion here. And this great fish that swallowed and miss what, what's going on inside this man's heart. This guy is, had been resisting God. He'd been rejecting the will of God for his life, but now he wants to re-enlist. He says in verse 7, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He was fainting. He had lost all hope. He was going into unconsciousness. And it's in this state where he says, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Some of us don't remember the Lord until our spouse leaves us. Some of us don't remember the Lord until our children rebel. Some of us don't remember the Lord until we're on some sickbed. Some of us don't remember the Lord until we're laid off and we can't find a job and the bills are piling up. Some of us don't remember the Lord until we're near death. It's amazing how many people, when there's a national crisis, will show up at church, but as soon as the crisis is over, they forget God. We need to remember the Lord. Why? Because he's worth remembering. Lamentations 3 says, the Lord's loving kindness. You see that word, loving kindness? It's the Hebrew word, kesed, not hesed. There's no such word, kesed. Say kesed, kesed. The Lord's loving kindness, it's difficult to capture with a single word. God's unrelenting love that just doesn't stop. Some translations say God's mercy. I have a daughter-in-law named Kessid. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. His loving kindnesses never cease for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, you know getting swallowed had to have been terrifying. I mean, try to recreate it in your own mind. He's in the belly. He's not in the mouth. He's down in the belly and the bowels of the fish where the air is. It's pitch black inside. There's gastric juices all around him. There's a rancid smell of fish that was digesting. It's 104 to 106 degrees Fahrenheit. There's no footholds. All he can feel is his mucous membrane. I don't know if he was claustrophobic. I certainly would have felt that way. But it's in that context 
that he remembers the Lord and he gets right. I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And that means God heard. Now, please don't miss this. God is not pleased with all prayer. We simplistically sometimes say, well, God always answers prayer. Yes, no, or maybe, or wait. It's not true. God doesn't hear some prayer. In fact, God is disgusted with some prayer. Proverbs says, he who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. I heard our president saying, well, we need to pray for this and pray for that. And I think, while all the while you're advocating that we bring infant little babies in a mother's womb and have them slaughtered in a clinic somewhere, all the while while you're waving the flag of transgenderism and homosexuality and all kinds of wickedness, some prayer is an abomination. And some prayer, when it comes down to believers, God doesn't listen to it. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. We looked at this last time. Not if I sin, for we all stumble in many ways. But if I regard, if I cling to, if I hold on to, if I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord doesn't hear. Isaiah put it this way, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. He's speaking of believers. God not hearing our prayer. Why? Because we're holding on to sin. And sometimes it is just very subtle and very small. And the reason some of us have no power with God is because there's compromise in our hearts. You go home at night and you watch filth. Oh, it's just a little sex, just a little swearing, just a little cursing. You listen to ungodly music or whatever it is that is transpiring in your life. You don't repent of it. You cling to it. You hold on to it. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. He's not talking about positional righteousness. Every child of God has that. He's speaking about experiential righteousness where our heart is in sync with the Lord. Now notice verse 8. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Now the word faithfulness uh, here in the NASB. In the ESB, ESV, they render it steadfast love. Again, it's that word kesed. God's unfailing love. Those who regard vain idols, they they forsake what they thought was a loving God when there is no such God. They abandon, they forsake those idols. Vain idols, if you were reading the American Standard Version that was produced in 1901, that was the predecessor to the New American Standard that came out in 1956 and updated in 63 and 71 and 78 and 95 and now NESB 2020 reflecting the language of our day because language changes. But there it says lying vanities. Not vain idols, but lying vanities. And that's good because that's what idols are. They lie to you. They, they promise you life, but they rip you off. It might be pornography. It might be, quote, unquote, relaxing with alcohol or pot, which the scripture calls pharmakia, sorcery. It's the entry level into the occult. You read these rock bands who openly, without apology, worship the occult. Go back, read their history. They started, most of them, on drugs. And most of the time, it was pot. And we want to legalize it in this state. We want to make it medical marijuana to recreational marijuana. And most of the evangelical church in South Carolina is just asleep 
It might be pornography. It might be fame. It might be fortune. Those are all idols. God expands idolatry in Colossians 3, 5 to sexual immorality and greed. It's anything you put above the living God. We saw a beautiful illustration of the sailors who forsook their idols. They, they turned to the one true God. What Jonah is saying here is that no idol could have come up with one of these fish subs to have rescued me. This is the hand of God. And how foolish it is to turn to friends, to our job, to our money or alcohol or whatever it is to find satisfaction in life. Verse 9. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Jonah says he will sacrifice with the voice of thanksgiving, which represents verbal praise. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of our adversary. I often quote that verse in the baptismal. But your lips are not enough. You can give God lip service without heart service. Jesus said, quoting Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In the original context, then the Lord said, because his people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far away from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. If we offer something with our lips and it doesn't translate into our wills down into our feet, that's all it is, is lip service. Ah, but he adds... That which I have vowed, I will pay. Now, what's Jonah's vow? God called him to be his spokesman to the Ninevites. He's saying, God, you called me to preach to this wicked people, and I will go wherever you want me to go to say whatever you want me to pray, I'm yours. He makes a vow, and a vow, when you think about it, simply means a promise. Every time I perform a wedding, I always quote Ecclesiastes 5, where Solomon wrote, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So when you make a vow to God, God doesn't forget. That's why Jesus said your yes should be yes and your no should be no. Beyond any of this, it's evil. That's why he said in Matthew 12, and I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for in the day of judgment. So for Jonah to to purpose to keep his vow, he is repenting of his sin. Again, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. If Jonah had only said, I will sacrifice to you, then that would have been incomplete repentance and nothing would have happened. If he had only said, I will sacrifice you with the voice of thanksgiving, that would not have represented repentance and there would have been no response. But when Jonah says, that which I have out, I will pay, salvation is from the Lord, that's real repentance. Keep in mind, Jonah was not thankful because he was back on dry land. He wasn't there yet. He wasn't thankful because he hadn't been drowned. He doesn't know what's going to happen. But he thanked God that he was worthy of his obedience. And he says, God, whatever happens, I vow in my heart to do what you say. And the hatch opens. And God releases his prophet. That brings us to the final section of the message, the sequel of Jonah's prayer. 
Then we're told in verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. All the time Jonah has been in the fish, traveling back to dry land, now the journey is over and the instrument of God's deliverance that had been appointed now is commanded. I mean, this fish has got a stomach ache. He can't stand this man inside of him. You can't keep a good man down, I hope you know that. So God pilots the submarine right to where he needs to go. And the text says he vomited Jonah up onto dry land. It's a very picturesque expression in the Hebrew. I mean, gravy and all. He's thrown up. And he heads to Nineveh. Now, how are we going to apply this text this morning? Let me make three applications as we close. Number one, we should not wait until we are in a crisis to pray. We studied in chapter one, him being out of fellowship. All the time he's determined to do his own thing, but not to pray. It's not until he's in a total crisis that he prays. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Romans 15, other passages remind us that the Old Testament was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. These things are written to us as an example, Paul said, that we might not repeat the mistakes that they made. And so we need to recognize that if we are born again believers, Satan will do everything in his power to keep you off of your knees. Do you remember on that occasion, actually twice in the beginning of his ministry and the end of his ministry, Jesus went into the temple and he cleansed it. And he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. They made it a den of merchandising. My house, the temple there in Jerusalem, shall be called a house of prayer. Now, just remember, God doesn't have a house anymore. This isn't God's house. This is the meeting place of Community Bible Church. You are God's house. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have from God? And this temple needs to be a house of prayer. Now, somewhere along the line, Jonah got cold. He got out of fellowship with God. And it's not until the crisis comes that he gets right. Don't let that happen to you. Don't be going down in flames when you crowd to God. Now, you can do just about anything without prayer, but you can't do anything that's worth anything, that's fruitful and glorifying to the Lord where he gets all the credit and you're rewarded in heaven unless you pray. Second, I learned we must affirm that salvation is from the Lord. In my judgment, this may be the most important statement in the whole book. After all, it's the theme of the entire Bible, and it's hard to miss the point that Jonah was coming to God not as a Jew deserving some kind of special privilege or concession. He's coming as a sinful human being. And that's what he needed, and that's what we need. It's called grace. And salvation is of the Lord. It's not something we pull off. It's not man doing a work for God. It's God doing a work for man. He knew that he deserved death, but God brought deliverance. And you and I, we deserve eternal wrath unless we come to God through Christ for there is salvation in no one else. We're as good as dead. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Third and finally, in the final analysis, only God can solve our problems. In the final analysis... 
Only God can solve our problems. You may this morning be in a sea of problems because of foolish, sinful, uninformed decisions that you have made in your life is a mess and you are miserable. But understand why you can flee from God if you've met him. You cannot escape his love, his kessed, his unfailing love for you, his everlasting love for you. David will ask, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. God knows exactly where you are. He knows what sea you're in, what's your longitude, your latitude. He knows everything about you and he still cares for you. And if you've never met him, flee to him today. And if you have met him, then pray what King David prays at the end of that psalm. Search me, O God and know my way. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Our Father, I thank you today that your word is timeless, that this is not simply what you have said. This is what you are saying to the body of Christ today. For those who have ears to hear it, And I know that within the sound of my voice today on one of these campuses or someone live streaming in some part of the world or sitting in this auditorium or out in the children's room, that there's somebody here who is a Jonah, who has fled from you, who have made compromises in their hearts, and their passion and their love and the joy that they once knew has grown cold and indifferent. But thank you that your loving care, your kessid never ceases. Help someone this morning to claim the promise given only to born-again people that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help someone to make it right, to restore their intimacy and fellowship with you. And help someone hearing me today has never met you. They don't know if heaven's their home because they've never put their confidence in a finished work. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that when you died, you completely paid for our sin debt, that whoever will may come, that is the resurrected Lord, as you were declared to be the sinless Son of God, you can invite us to come to you, those who are heavy laden, that we might find rest for our souls. Thank you that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Help someone today, Father, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And we ask it, Jesus, in your name and for your honor. Amen. Sometimes the trials of our lives are the consequences of our actions. Other times it's because God is drawing us to himself. If you have never made a decision to trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, we invite you to do that today. And if you'd like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 
and requesting program JNH4. And of course, you can always use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app, available for smartphones and tablets. Download the app at both the Apple Store and Google Play Store. There you can listen to the entire sermon series by Dr. Brogy, including the book of Jonah and many more. Tomorrow we'll begin the next message in our study of the book of Jonah. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>